As you know, we've been studying through the book of 2 Timothy, so get your Bibles out, and we're going to continue that study. In fact, this is the last installment of this series, and uh, it's called Fight to the Finish. Fight to the Finish. And what we've been talking about is the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, his young son in the faith. He's writing this letter from prison, most likely Rome, and, uh, and he knows what's coming. He knows the end is near. It's why he writes in chapter 4, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And it's as if the Apostle Paul in this very personal and open-hearted letter to Timothy, he knows it's his last words, he knows it's kind of his last will and testament, and so he's communicating to Timothy what he wants from him, how he wants him to endure, how he wants him to be full of courage and full of conviction. What we've said about this letter is, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul telling Timothy, it doesn't really matter how you start, even though you, you started pretty well, it's about how you finish. It's about ha what happens at the end. Position is nothing, direction is everything. And so there, there, this, is, this is what we've been studying. We've been looking at this uh, scripture. And, and uh, if you'll get ready to read there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Let's pray uh, before we read the scripture. Father, we bless the reading of the scripture now. We ask you to illuminate our hearts and minds. Open us up. Make it clear. Speak your words into our hearts as we read and as we listen, as we share. We receive it now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is under the heading personal remarks in my NIV Bible, and it says, do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Now, let's just stop right there and review this little paragraph. Already we have a sense of Paul's vulnerability as he's pleading with Timothy to come quickly. We don't really know if he's talking about avoid the difficulty of coming in winter, the shipping lanes, uh, make, sure you, make sure you do this at the right time of the year. We don't know if he's saying, Timothy, I really need you. I know what's coming and I want to see you one more time. But you can hear his heart open and he says, do your best to come to me quickly. And then he adds this in, in this sentence. He, he, he adds this idea of Demas. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Some Bible scholars think that Demas might have made his home in Thessalonica. Not, there's no way to prove that. But he was placed there with Timothy at an earlier time. And he may have deserted Paul on the mission that they were on and gone back home. And it was... Uh, you, can, you can hear in the letter, it's heartbreaking to Paul. We don't know much about Demas. What we know is what Paul says is that because he loved this world. The challenge for every one of us is to love God more than we love this world. In fact, Paul addresses it. If you turn back one chapter in chapter 3, this, we talked about this a few weeks ago. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. He says down in verse 5 or verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Somehow Demas got drawn away from his mission and his purpose. And this has caused him to desert Paul. Paul has sent two or three other uh, men on his team to different cities. And he says in verse 11, only Luke is with me. He, he, later he, he, he acknowledges that there's some other people with him. But I think what he's telling Timothy is, 
Out of the team that came with me, only Luke is left. Only Luke is left. Some Bible scholars think this is a, a tip or a clue. Maybe Luke helped him write this letter because of the way some of the language works. It's reminiscent of Luke's writings in Luke and Acts. But he says, only Luke is with me. And then he says this, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. Now, if you look at Acts 15, you see that Mark is John Mark. And Paul and Barnabas were ready to go on a, a missionary journey. And there came such a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas about John Mark. Paul did not want to take him with them because he had deserted them on an earlier journey. And it was such a disagreement that they had to split ways. And Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas and, and began the journey of Paul and Silas. But here, Paul is referencing this same man. And the, and the implication with the tense of the sentence is he's already engaged again in ministry with Paul. He's already engaged again, but he wants him to come and be with him because he's useful to him. It's, a, it's just a, a really good illustration of a relationship that had gone awry but then was restored. And, and I think we can, we can see into it. If we peer into the Apostle Paul's mindset or heart, we can see he's trying to draw people to himself. There's, there's, he's in need of comfort, companionship. He wants Timothy to come quickly. He wants him to bring Mark. He says, I, <clears throat> I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. He's on his way. Timothy's coming from Ephesus, so he's probably en route. Verse 13 says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troy. My scrolls, especially the apartments, most likely those are Old Testament books that had been written of quite a bit of value to Paul because of the, the time and expense it took to copy those. He wants him to bring him with him on his way. And so verse 14, we kind of go even deeper into Paul's psyche, and he says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. I really like that phrase. <laughs> I'm going to start using it a little bit more. Somebody does something to me. Somebody makes me mad. Oh, it's okay. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. No, I think he's just acknowledging, the Apostle Paul is acknowledging that he's not the one who's in charge of what happens to that guy. The Lord's in charge of that. It's very important for us to understand in our modern day context that we are not fighting a war against people. What we're, what we're into is a spiritual war. And part of our reputation in our culture, our current society, is that we are negative people, haters of others, intolerant of people. That should not be our reputation. We should be lovers of people. And then we should be really diligent in guarding against the dark forces of this world. We're people of light, and we're on guard against the dark forces, the spiritual wickedness, Paul says in high places in 2 Corinthians 10. Here's what he's saying to Timothy. He says, the Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. What are we supposed to do with people who strongly oppose our message? Be on guard. Be ready. Be, you know, be on guard suggests be prepared. Most of the time, that's going to come in the context of a conversation. It's going to come in the context of some discussion. We got to be ready, prepared, spiritually ready, prayed up. Verse 16 the openness and vulnerability of the Apostle Paul continues. He says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. 
And then he adds, may it not be held against them. Reminiscent of Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Once again, we see it very clear. The Apostle Paul had, a, had confidence in God and his ability to handle these affairs. But still, we sort of hear and we see in this writing this sense of being alone, the sense of being deserted, the sense of wanting the community of Timothy and Mark. But look what he says in verse 17. And I want you to get your pen and underline this because this is the key verse for the passage. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. It's not, it's not provable, but most Bible scholars think that this first defense was his defense in front of King Agrippa and Felix in Acts 23 through 26. The Apostle Paul felt as though there, weren't, there wasn't anybody to come and, and support him. He had to stand there alone and he had to make a defense. He says, I was there alone, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that I might engage in the purpose for which I was sent, which is to fully proclaim so that all the Gentiles would hear the message. Not just God's people, but all the people of the world would hear the message of the gospel. He says, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Hard to know exactly what he was talking about. Most likely it, it's Caesar, the picture of Caesar or Rome. Could be even a allusion to a allusion to a um, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He said, The Lord delivered me, rescued me. Sorry, he delivered me from the lion's mouth. And then, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love this about Paul. This is reminiscent of the psalmists. If you read the psalms and you see how the psalmists were agonizing, wrestling, in anguish, feeling as though life is cruel and God is nowhere to be found. Saying it out loud, praying it, opening up their heart for others to see in the writing. And yet, as the writing goes on, it turns at the end of the psalm. Paul, it turns at the end of the psalm and, and begins to proclaim God's faithfulness, his lordship. Here, Paul does the same thing. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. What, what, is this guy crazy? This is the guy who has been wounded, hurt. This is the guy who's been beaten multiple times, left for dead, having to escape different cities, shipwrecked. A snake reaches up and bites him on the arm, supposed to die, doesn't die. This is, this is that guy, and he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. Paul had something here. Even in the midst of feeling alone, his back against the wall, disappointment heavy on him. It comes out at the end of the letter. Final greetings, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Think of it. He's got a friend who is sick, and he had to leave him. This is the guy that heals people, believes in healing. He's having to wrestle with the fact that Trophimus is sick in Miletus. Verse 21 says, do your best to get here before winter. There it is again. I need you to come. Eubulus, nice name, greets you. And, I, and this is kind of my favorite name. And so do puddins. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not how you say it. But I, I like saying it that way because it's so fun to say puddins. Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. I want to talk to you tonight 
about standing alone. Standing alone. That's the title of the message. The truth is, every one of us will come upon a time in our lives where we must stand alone. When each of us must make a proclamation or a decision to stand in the face of opposition, to stand alone when others have deserted, to choose to stand on the grace of God and the faith that we have in him. And this is a, an interesting message for me because I've been teaching over and over again, trying to hit hard on the 21st century American individualism that has crept into the church. You've heard me say over and over again, you need to be in community. You need to be connected to other people. You need to find the strength and the stability that only comes in a group of people. And there's no doubt that that is where we find stability. That's where we find protection. There is no doubt that God challenges us and shapes us in community. He, he even uses others and their failures to coach us and shape us, to, to work forgiveness inside of us, to challenge us, to be like him. He uses all that. In fact, if you think about the fruit of the spirit, it's only demonstrated through relationships because you can't, you can't really demonstrate love unless it's aimed at another person. If the fruit of the spirit is love, well, you're going to have to be in relationship to see the fruit. It's not an attitude. It's not a nice feeling in your heart. It actually has um, fruit that is inspectable. Inspectable? Is that a word? It's able to be inspected. So community is really something I keep, I keep stressing because I'm trying to get us to open up and not live in isolation. Trying to get us to embrace the kingdom work of God that only happens in community. But the truth is you must choose to be in community. No one can force you. No one can force your vulnerability. You must choose it. The truth is we have to put our faith in Christ alone. Because here's the problem. People will fail. We cannot put our faith in people. Our faith only belongs in Jesus. This is the, this is the struggle. This is the challenge of living in community. It's, you've heard me say it multiple times. I think it's especially true in a city like Austin. Everybody wants to be spiritual. Everybody loves God. They just don't like his family. They don't like his people, which is why we get a steady stream of people who come through one chapel who kind of are kind of connected, sort of, and they visit church to church to church. They can't seem to find a place where they really connect, and they're not really. If maybe that's you tonight. I just want to challenge you to find your place where you can be in community, where people can know you and you can know them. No church is perfect. We can't put our faith in the people who are in the church. We have to put our faith in Jesus. So, so he challenges us to earn trust with one another, to build trust with one another. Our friends will fail us. There's just no way around it. Your best friends end up failing you. Your family will end up frustrating you. Can I get an Amen. There, there's no way around that. Other people will disappoint you. Listen, your pastor will not be able to measure up to the perfection you somehow have in your mind of how good he is. Amen. Thanks a lot. That was great. There is no other service that did that. I had to help him understand what I was saying, but you're like, amen, that's right, preach it. <laughs> he ain't perfect at all. <laughs> Here's what happens is it's not always the pastor that puts himself on a pedestal. Sometimes it's the people. They put him up there. 
And that's really hard. Because there is no one perfect. There is not one perfect human. There was one. He was perfect. And they killed him. (laughs) Each of us will have a time in our lives when we alone must stand in the strength and the grace that God, that only God can give us. Every one of us has to face temptation and resist sin with our own decision. You can get people around you. You can create accountability. You should. We should work together. We should be in community where we're helping one another. But the truth is you make the final call. And there are moments when you're going to have to stand alone. No one can carry you across the finish line. Should you run with them in the race? Yes, but you're the only one who can actually cross the finish line. You have to cross it yourself. So how do we stand alone? How do we do this? This Because this is tough. How do you stand alone in a moment of crisis? How do you stand alone in a, in a moment where you have opposition, where you have temptation, where you have struggle? If you look at this picture, what you'll see is one lone man resisting in incredible odds. This is Tiananmen Square in Beijing, 1989. The day before this picture was taken, there was protesters all over the square. They were kind of mowed down by the government and people lost their lives. And the next day, this, the tanks are rolling in and one guy shows up stands in front of the tanks. It's an iconic picture almost, isn't it? He stood there, and it was a standoff. The world was watching. This guy's known as the unknown rebel. That's kind of what I'd like to be, like the unknown rebel. It's, he's also known as Tank Man, if you Google him. <laughs> tank Man. You just Google Tank Man, and this, this is what comes up. How do you stand alone? What does it take? What does it take to stand in the face of horrible odds and make your stand? I want to give you three ideas. Three ideas. First of all, I think it takes conviction. You have to have conviction what you believe. When I say conviction for what you believe, I'm not talking about preferences. I'm not talking about things that you feel like, you know, you'll do. If, if all things are equal, I'll choose the right thing. I believe in the Bible, and I believe in its truth, and I believe in its principles. Unless my boss puts pressure on me to cook the books and lie, then I might lose my job, and then I, can't, I don't have a choice. I really have, to do, I really have to do what he says. See, that's not a conviction. That's a, that's, a, that's a thing that we, we're thinking about our own comfort, our own ability to handle the situation. See, conviction goes deeper than that. Conviction is something that you're willing to put your life on the line for. It tends to be rare in our time. It has a lot of integrity associated with it. It's, it's wholeness. It's, there's no cracks. It's, it's conviction. You stake your life on it. You're willing to suffer for it because you believe in it. The problem is, I think, in our modern-day culture is we have trouble knowing exactly what we do believe. <laughs> if we don't know the Scriptures well enough... We end up having some convictions about God, but with no way to explain them or follow through on them if we don't understand what the scripture says. That ends up being a struggle, which is why we have to diligently search the scriptures. We have to diligently coach one another and be involved in small groups and connect with one another so that we can help each other, train one another. Conviction for what you believe. It's a great story that I came across written by a guy named Herb Miller, and I'm going to read it to you. It's a, it's a cute little story. He says, two Kentucky farmers who owned racing stables had developed a keen rivalry. 
One spring, each of them entered a horse in a local steeplechase. You ever seen a steeplechase? You jump over fences and you do all kinds of stuff and it's, it's pretty wild. Thinking that a professional rider might help him outdo his friend, one of the farmers engaged a crack jockey, a professional. So the two horses were neck and neck with a large lead over the rest of the pack at the last fence. But suddenly both of them fell, unseating their riders. The professional jockey remounted quickly and rode on to win the race. And returning triumphantly to the paddock, the jockey found the farmer who had hired him fuming with rage. What's the matter, the jockey asked. I won, didn't I? Oh, yeah, roared the farmer. You won all right, but you crossed the finish line on the wrong horse. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense at which we tend, I think, as Christians, sometimes we, we fall off and then we get on the wrong horse. And we have all this conviction and we have all this stuff and then we don't even know how to, how to really finish the race. We're not sure exactly what we believe. We know we believe something really strongly, but we got to be able to unpack it. we got to be able to describe it. You have to be able to articulate it in a moment of need. There's two books that have really helped me in this regard that I want to give you. I want to just, I'm, <laughs> I want to, I want to let you write them down. You can download them on your Kindle. You can purchase them. This is, there's a great book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I really like this book because he takes believing in God and he comes at it from a point of view of logic not just believing the scriptures his premise the premise of the book is essentially it's it's reasonable and rational to believe in God it is not irrational it is not stupid and of course he bases some of it on the scripture I mean it's not like there's no scripture, but, but that's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to arm you and I with understanding, with being able to be articulate in a discussion about why you believe what you believe. It's really good. I really like it. It's good, good for all of us to read. The second book that's, I think, more personal in nature, but really good in your discipleship journey is The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. Great book. It'll... it'll It'll encourage you. It'll help you understand spiritual disciplines in a very common way. It's very accessible. I think we've got to really understand what we believe and what we're talking about and where we're going. We have to have conviction about what we believe. The second idea that I want you to get is courage to face opposition. Courage to face opposition. Jesus was really clear. He said in, in uh, John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's what he said. In John 15, 18 through 20, here's what he said. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it has, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Here's the problem. What you believe is going to bring opposition. And you're going to have to have courage. You're going to have to draw courage from somewhere. When we think about the persecuted church around the planet, it is incredible to watch how God begins to give grace that leads to courage in the face of opposition. This kind of courage is difficult sometimes to, to grab onto. We need, we need stories, we need pictures of it. One such picture comes from a girl named Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges. I'll read you a little story about Ruby. A federal judge had ordered New Orleans to open its public schools to African-American children. 
And the white parents decided that if they had to let black children in, they would keep their children out. They let it be known that any black children who came to the school would be in for trouble, so the black children stayed home too. Okay, you get this? The judge makes the ruling. They're going to desegregate. The white parents threaten the black kids. And the white parents are afraid of, of what's going to happen, so they keep their kids home. The parents of the black kids keep their kids home because they're afraid of what's going to happen. So nobody comes to school except for Ruby Bridges. Her parents sent her to school all by herself. She was six years old. Every morning she walked alone through a heckling crowd to an empty school. White people lined up on both sides of the way and shook their fists at her. They threatened to do terrible things to her if she kept coming to their school. But every morning at 10 minutes to 8, Ruby walked head up, eyes ahead, straight through the mob. Two U.S. Marshals walked ahead of her and two walked behind her. And then she spent the day alone with her teachers inside that big silent school building. Harvard professor Robert Coles was curious about what went into the making of a courageous child like Ruby Bridges. He talked to Ruby's mother and in his book, The Moral Life of Children, tells what she said. Ruby's mother said, there's a lot of people who talk about doing good and a lot of people who argue about what's good and what's not good, but there are other folks who just put their lives on the line for what's right. Is it, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing as Christians? Staking our reputation on doing what's right? Somehow receiving the courage from God that no matter what the boss says, you're going to do the right thing? That no matter what is happening in your family, you're going to do the right thing? That no matter what the temptation is, you are going to stand alone and have the courage to face it and refuse the lure of sin? Here's the deal. we got to condition ourselves for this opposition. We have to condition ourselves for it. You know, that's kind of what we're doing here. You realize that? Paul told Timothy this in his first letter to him. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, he said, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godlike. That's what, okay, just honestly, we're not doing anything else here. We're training one another. We're challenging one another. We're challenging one another to be consumed with God and to be consumed with his mission. I know there's a sense at which, <laughs> there's a sense at which um, we kind of want to just enjoy. I mean, life is so hard. Can't we just come to church and enjoy it? Can't I just feel good? I just want to feel good. There's a pastor who said one time, he said, everywhere Paul went, they started a riot. And everywhere I go, they serve tea. Do you feel like that sometimes? Like as a Christian, aren't we supposed to have courage to face opposition? And wherever we go, we actually end up stirring it up a little bit? Isn't, isn't that kind of what should be happening? And that's why we gather here. We're training one another. It's okay. You're all right. You're going you're gonna to do great. Come on. You can make it. You can face it. You can, you can do it. How do, you, how do you train each other? How do you begin the process of training, well, if you look at athletes who are trying to lift large amounts of weight, how do they start? They start with a little bit of weight. And then they progress and they lift more weight. Runners run a, a smaller distance and then they increase that distance over time. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. Third idea, conviction and the courage to carry out those convictions, but then you have to have confidence that there's a reward. You have to have confidence there's, there's something beyond, that there's something bigger, something greater, something beyond just our natural realm, our natural world. Look at what 2 Corinthians, or yeah, 2 Corinthians 4.16, it says, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, <laughs> outwardly we are wasting away. I've never known that to be so true. 
than I do right now in my life. I'm getting to the age where I can feel my body wasting away. Paul says we're all going to face it. We're all going to fight the battle of the bulge. We're all going to fight the battle of gravity. (laughs) Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There's something greater going on. There is a a judge, a righteous judge, who is walking with us in this journey. And the truth is, he's fixed the outcome so it can be in your favor. (laughs) You just have to believe that there's a reward. Not just a reward in heaven, but a reward even now. That there's special grace and favor that comes on you when you're willing to be courageous, live by your convictions. And have confidence that God is with you. Have you ever really been alone? Like really just felt alone? You might say to yourself, I can't, I don't, I don't know that I can do this. I mean, I've been trying for a lot of years, Pastor Ross, and I don't know. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Apostle Paul said, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is Faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Sometimes the confidence has to be in knowing that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There's a great country song that talks about God must sure think a lot of me. (laughs) Because what I'm facing is so hard. He says, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Everybody say endure. There's something about enduring. Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not my own strength. See, the thing is, Christ is the only source for standing alone. I felt incredibly alone several years ago at the church I was at before one chapel, New Life Church in Colorado Springs, and I I was there as the worship pastor for many, many years, and suddenly our pastor was found to have failed morally. It was really a big deal. It was really hard. It was really difficult. He was a man of influence, and so... Everybody wanted to know what happened. Everybody wanted to know what was going on. The national media showed up in our front parking lot of the church. I mean, CNN, MSNBC, uh, ABC, CBS, everybody, PBS, everybody was there. It was crazy. It was a circus. It was heartbreaking. It was gut-wrenching. The disappointment, the sadness, the the. The violation, it was incredible to watch it and to see it unfold. And I, I became the interim senior pastor during that season. And if, you've ever, if you ever get a chance to be an interim senior pastor, I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it's not that great. I remember feeling the scrutiny of everybody. Because I was having to get up there every Sunday and help that family of believers navigate through the difficulty, through the, the doubt, through the mistrust. You understand the only thing the church really has is trust, people's trust. And when you violate, it's very hard to earn back. We were trying to recover from, from it. We were navigating Difficult waters. The scrutiny of the national media was upon us. What kind of other junk? What kind of other dirt's in there? They were scratching and clawing, trying to find every angle. 
The scrutiny of the overseers, the pastors that were in charge of helping us navigate that. The scrutiny of the congregation every single Sunday. The scrutiny of the trustees who were in charge of all the capital assets of the corporation. The scrutiny of other pastors in our city. I remember it feeling overwhelming. I, I truly, there was moments where I truly felt alone. I didn't know what to do. During that season, I called a, an early morning prayer, and we did it for months, Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. <laughs> I called it because I knew there was no way I could make it unless I had an hour of prayer every day and people praying for me and me praying and asking God to pour out his grace. I ended up laying underneath a chair more than one, sun, more than one uh, morning during those weeks crying out to God, God. Help us. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what to do. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come in the midst of this chaos. Help me. Help me to have wisdom. And then a funny thing happened. Really a crazy thing happened. Every time I would get up there on a Sunday morning, I'd stand up and words would come out of my mouth that I didn't even know were there. Good words. You know, good good. <laughs> Good things. Yeah, not bad words. Those happened at other times. But, 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 but good words, words of encouragement, words of compassion, words of healing, words of forgiveness. The scripture came alive as we began to navigate this journey of faith that we were in. And God's grace came on my life like I'd never experienced it before. And that church held together like a family. And it was awesome to watch the miracle happen. But make no mistake, I felt alone. Jesus has something to say about this. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll see a description of what Jesus did for us. Look at this, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's just gone through the entire chapter of faith and listed all these Old Testament heroes. And he's saying, look, you're surrounded by people. They're watching. They're watching. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Run with perseverance, the race that God has marked out for you. Verse 2 says, let us fix our eyes on who? On your neighbor? On your mentor? On your family, on your kids? No, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the author, he is the beginning and the end of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here's what this verse says. If you'll fix your eyes on Jesus, you won't grow weary and lose heart. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, you will be able to endure. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, you'll be able to persevere. If you fix your eyes on other things, if you fix your eyes on your need, if you fix your eyes on your worry, on your anxiety, if you, if you fix your eyes on all these other things, you're doomed. But if you fix your eyes on Jesus... He's the only one who can start it and finish it. Look at this. He became alone in the world so you and I wouldn't have to be. He became, he became alone in the world so you and I would never have to be fully alone. Think about it. He was hanging there on the cross and he, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment, the moment of complete and utter loneliness in the world. He took it upon himself so that you and I would never have to feel that. He took it. The sins of the world, the shame, his father turning away from the sin that, was, that he was taking upon himself, the sense of loss, he took that so you and I don't have to. 
The truth is we are never really alone. That's how you stand alone. Is because you know that the truth is you're never really alone. Paul said to Timothy, he said, for the Lord was standing by my side when I was defending the message of the gospel. He was putting words in my mouth. He was making it so that I could fulfill my purpose of sending the message around the world. That's what Paul said to Timothy. I want to give you just three quick things, and then we'll finish. Three quick things that prove that you don't have to be alone. Number one, the Holy Spirit is always with us. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Look what 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Hey, 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 that's no small thing. The Holy Spirit lives in you. God's great plan. Jesus said, look, if I don't leave, you're not going to get the best deal. I'm going away and you're sad, but I'm going to send you somebody. I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm going to send you a counselor. Think of the brilliance. It's not just Jesus walking around and healing people. You know what it is? It's God living in each of us. He's multiplying himself by seven billion times. That's God's plan. He's in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You ever heard the verse where Jesus said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water? Holy Spirit lives in you. Our problem most of the time is we clog it up. We clog it up with the love of the world, with worries and cares and anxieties and all this stuff, and we clog up the well. The Holy Spirit's in there. He's in there. But we clog it up, and he can't come out. We're not trying to get God to come here. He's already here. What we have to do is let him out. Second thing I want you to see is Jesus is always praying for us. Hebrews 7. Jesus is always praying for us. Hebrews 7, 24 says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That word intercede. He is in intercession for you and me. That means, that's a, that's a prayer term. It's a, it's a term that means he's standing in the gap for you and for me. He's constantly there. He lives for that. He died for your sin, and now he lives to make intercession for you and for me. That's pretty awesome. Who else in the world would you rather have praying for you? <laughs> but see, we, somehow we kind of forget. Oh, life is so hard and everything. I don't, know if, I don't know if God's anywhere near. I don't know. Jesus is praying for you. Final thing is the Father is always watching over us with love. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Luke says that if you as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those whom he loves you're one of God's kids. I know it with my kids. I look at them. I hate, I hate to think of it. I hate thinking of them having to stand alone on the playground and standing up for what's right. Standing up to the ridicule of other kids. But there is no way around it. I have to teach them how to do that. They'll do that much more effectively if they know who they are. They're secure in who they belong to and they know that their dad loves them. I think this is how it works. How do you stand alone? You realize you're never truly alone. Close your eyes, bow your heads, let's pray. I want you to just take a moment and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. He might point out an area of your life that he wants to, he wants to take over. Maybe you're in a position of great loneliness even tonight. You feel as though you're facing opposition that's just more than you can handle. 
Maybe you're living in a struggle. You feel a struggle even for your own soul. And you need strength, you need grace, you need, you need healing, you need help. You need God to come and reveal himself to you. And you need to really have confidence that Jesus is standing right beside you. I'm not going to embarrass anyone. I'm not going to call you forward. But I do want to pray with you. And if that any of those things describe you, you're facing the a difficulty. You're, you feel alone. You're having to stand against opposition. You're having to stand alone against temptation. I want to pray with you. Just shoot your hand up in the air and say, Pastor, pray for me. Yep, I see you. Anybody else? Anyone else? You just feel that sense of loneliness and being alone. Anybody else? Yep. Yeah, I see you over here. See you over here. That's so good. I tell you what, would you just pray this prayer with me? Maybe just pray along with me under your breath as I lead you. Pray this prayer for yourself. Father, thank you for Jesus. I confess my own sins, my failures, my mistakes. The reasons, some of the reasons that I may even feel alone right now, I confess those to you. I'm so sorry. I repent for not looking to you, fixing my eyes on my worry or my concerns or my failures, putting my eyes on others and their actions. Instead of fixing my eyes on you, forgive us, Lord. Forgive me for doing that. Would you change me now? I repent of kind of doing my own thing. Now I want to do what you want me to do. I want to have conviction. I want you to fill me with courage. I want you to fill me with confidence that there is a reward, that you're waiting to pour out your grace on me. If only I will choose you. Give me a fresh start tonight. Help me to stand. When no one else will stand, help me to stand. I receive the strength that only you provide now. Wash over me. Wash over me now. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with who you are so that I can go from here and stand in the strength that you provide. I thank you for it in Jesus' name.